the Chateau Neuf de Parap? It'll be wasted on Tom. Here, this one. It's your fancy drop, seeing as you've opened it. A small one. Cheers. Cheers. Hello, I'm Amy. And I'm Gay. And together we are the co-founders and joint artistic directors of Human Story Theatre. We focus on new plays with a health and social care issue at heart and aim to be accessible to all. In 2018, our play Dry was commissioned by the NHS and explores middle-aged, middle-class drinking and how many people don't see their alcohol intake as a problem until it is too late. I think really deep down I probably knew that I shouldn't be drinking every day. I kind of thought that once we were married, he'd be so happy that he wouldn't need to drink anymore. I know that you can come out the other side. For every alcoholic, they badly affect at least five other people around them. Nothing worth having is straightforward, and we wouldn't value it if it was just given to us on a plate. Welcome to Human Story Theatre, the podcast. My guest today has NHS running through her veins and for 37 years has been working to improve health and healthcare. Her passion of how we do this in partnership with those who use the arts to make that happen is wonderful and right up Human Story Theatre's street. Also a professor of dementia with a PhD in this stuff, Marion Lynch, or Maz as Gay and I know her also brings her skills as a registered psychiatric and general nurse to the post-show Q&As that we hold. Maz, it's lovely to see you today. Hello, Amy. Thanks very much for the invite. You commissioned Gay to write Human Story Theatre to produce Dry, a play specifically about middle-class, middle-aged drinking. Tell me more about that and why. Well, Amy, the reason I commissioned Dry was I'd seen so many people who were in denial, really, about their drinking. And the comments from them were, perhaps, um, I drink too much because I like it too much, or I'm not really drinking too much compared to the others. And the whole world seemed to look at young people binge drinking or um, people who were homeless using drinking and drugs and thinking that was the problem, whereas our stats and situation in the NHS was that it was people extending the dinner party drinking, the jokes about um, school night drinking when people were over 50 and adults and didn't really have a school night at all. And the um, humour that went with it was um, hiding a big health problem in that some people say up to one-fifth of our admissions to hospital are alcohol-related and more than 200 um, health-challenging conditions that people have now are alcohol-related. And nobody was listening, and particularly people who were drinking weren't listening. So we needed a way that would enable them to listen, and we know that the arts does that. Fantastic, and we're very glad that you did commission us to, I say we, gay, to write write this play. Um, How important are the arts in promoting health messages, do you think? So we know that our NHS has been around for about 75 years now. And in 1948, when it was designed, it really was designed to do things to people. We had a situation where the professionals were in power, 
um, people were expected to be grateful for the care and the service they got and a real um, shift in what people had available to them. They weren't used to having a service and so um, anything was welcome. And that doing to people was a sign of the times. And then in the 80s, we shifted to a different way, a sort of a, a management model, a more um, business model that was um, doing things um, for people. And we had a sort of business agreement. In the 2000s, it shifted again. And we had, um, with the Labour government, doing things with people. And so that was partnership um, with patients and people who use services. And in that kind of way, we needed to shift where the power was. And this moved with how um, people regarded the NHS as well. They expected it to do for them what they wanted, as opposed to having a, um, a view of it that they were um, fortunate to have it. And this sort of market model shifted everything in the NHS. And as we moved to the next decades, uh, the idea of um, what the NHS needed to deliver and what needed to do um, kind of moved away from the focus being on buildings and professions and to self-care. So what can people do for themselves or what can people do to actually run their own health systems? And this is where we are now. And this is why I truly believe that the public creating their own messages for other people as to what could work, works. Listening to a healthcare professional is one way, but listening to somebody who's had the same experience as you um, really resonates with people. And the way we can do that is through the arts. Now, I say we can do it through the arts because um, this has been done for not just 75 years, but 2,000 years. So if we go right back, way, way, way back to the Greeks and the way that health and society and human living all join together, uh, we have lots of words from the philosophers that anything needs to be um, of three points, needs to be good, needs to be true, and needs to be beautiful. And we've had the good and the true through our science-based work um, as the, the world changes. You know, we've had the moral imperative that we do good and the scientific evidence that something is true. And we kind of missed out the aesthetics, the art, but the art world kept that up and the health world didn't really. And in the past few years now, we've recognised that in order for people to change their behaviour um, or to see things differently, it has to have that artistic endeavour. And the evidence from the World Health Organisation uh, is showing now how art can help health. So we're coming full circle from 2000 years ago in the way that the Greeks do it to a new way of designing health systems. And for more sort of evidence and jargon, it's called the fifth wave. And this is um, work that's saying we've had our, in, in Western world, we've had our way of fixing health by fixing the sewage and the water. We've had our way of fixing health by designing and then um, making available antibiotics and treatments. We've had our way of telling people what's good for them and what's wrong for them and asking them to change their behaviours. And all of that has got us to a point now where we have a, a world that's overweight, choosing to smoke and over drinking. And something else, therefore, is needed to 
enable people to look at themselves, to hold the mirror up to themselves. Theatre is a way of doing that, what we call breaking down the fourth wall. Instead of seeing theatre as something else, just as people see illness as something else, people are able to engage with the story, engage with the emotions that it brings, and recognise that the person on the stage is them. This is me moment. Um, and suddenly those light bulbs go on. And that's the trigger we need for people to then make the decision to change how they're using drugs, alcohol, um, food, etc. And that's why I do this. Fantastic. And that's why we have a no frills, shared light, shared space ethos, as it were, precisely for that reason, to break down that fourth wall barrier so that the audience feel like they're sat around the kitchen table with the Wilsons who are the the married couple in the play dry or with our play about dementia are in the kitchen cooking with Connie the chef and it's to give yeah a sense of intimacy and truth and and reality I suppose albeit just a human I say just but human stories and a piece of theatre. Yes, this is what I've seen when I've been at each of the plays and part of each of the Q&As. People really do suddenly feel that they're in a someone's living room um, or a, a sort of a trusted group and start to open up about their own experiences. And that, in, that atmosphere is only created by the narrative within the play and the excellent writing that brings people in, that they think they are around that table and they act as if they are around that table in the way that they uh, share their emotions and their experiences. And this is why the Q&A is crucial because not only um, does it enable people to share, but it is managed so well that it stops oversharing. You know, one of the key things when somebody suddenly realises that this is their life is that they want to say, oh my goodness, and let it all out. And by having the experts at the Q&A, we're able to enable people to say the first bit and then um, direct them to a more private conversation with one of the service providers or the charities so that then they can do something about it without feeling that they've suddenly um, you know, let their whole story out of the bag. Yeah, that's really important to us when we were thinking when we first started and were thinking about Q&As is about safeguarding, that element of safeguarding the audience because they feel emotive having seen what they've seen and then could pour out all this stuff which which uh, I certainly am not able to handle because I don't have that professional experience. So that's why it's so, so crucial for us to have those experts on the Q&A panels that we can signpost these people who have begun to open up to and they can then book their professional appointment or their session with these people or with the groups that are local to them. And that's why this partnership between the arts and health works. What I notice is the um, skills that come with writing a play, the communication skills, the uh, development of certain sentences, of certain ways of um, stopping and starting uh, an emotion or an or a, um, experience, are very similar to how you train as a psychiatric nurse, where you need to be able to 
um, see what potentially is coming and help people get to the um, right place um, or guide their thinking in a certain way and use certain words, not trigger words, um, not words that um, are going to escalate a situation, but words that are going to um, soothe or sort a situation. And that's why having the health professionals contribute to the content or contribute to the Q&A creates a perfect marriage. We just come at the issue um, with the same purpose, but in a different way. Yeah, and that combination is is essential. And it also helps a lot that Gay was also, or is also a trained psychiatric and general nurse originally before she became an actor and a writer. You can't, you can't take it away from somebody's um, inner core when you've actually um, started to um, live with the people's experiences, not, to the, not necessarily the training as a nurse, but the experience you've had of, of being with people, um, accompanying them along their lives, being at the times when they've been in most crisis and needed most support, but, and not necessarily recognising um, either of those are true. Yes, exactly. And what's really important to us um, at Human Story Theatre is that our, our work is not preachy as well. That's very important. We want it to be, well, we also want it to have humour in it and to be entertaining and not a preachy, you should do this, you should do that kind of a message, but one that is more food for thought, more getting you to self-reflect, perhaps? Or I think the, the way that we have managed the design of health-promoting messages across time has evolved. And like I said, the, the fourth wave was telling people they are to this or to that or what to do as well. And we've moved beyond that now in our thinking, not necessarily in all of our approaches where society still would judge people for some of their behaviours or choose to behave in a certain way so they're part of that certain group. Uh, This fifth wave is absolutely not preachy. Just as the um, Greeks in their amphitheatres, it's about a story and telling a story that connects to people's lives. And the Greeks, I'm sure it was all about political nuances or deep and meaningful um, things that I don't connect to um, in Greek tragedy or Greek comedy. We're using the same kind of ways to help people connect their world, their bigger world, to their inner world. Yes. But in with comedy and pathos and some smiles and some jokes, because everyone's got a everyone's got a drink joke. Um, and most of them are in the play as well. <laughs> That's true. So this alcoholism in the middle classes, what's what's that all about, do you think? <laughs> well, do you know, the plays have shown me that the people who come to listen to them are recognising that they have, or a friend or a family member has a problem that's becoming a problem for the whole family or the whole workplace. The stories that they tell show that this is a huge problem. Some people say, oh no, you you should be focusing on the youth. And the youth speak up and say, excuse me, it's not me who does the six bottles for 25% off every week. It's not me who opens the second bottle on a Thursday because it's nearly Friday. It's not me 
who has a wine diary and thinks that's classy or clever because if they can talk about it at 11 o'clock in the morning because they're still waiting to drink it at six o'clock, but they're only just waiting. Oliver, who we work with, was quite inspirational when he said that the youth do their thing and then they stop, whereas the alcoholism and the people who are um, hiding their drink don't stop. And this is hidden in our workers, our teachers, our health professionals, our bankers, um, because you can continue drinking and continue working to a point where it then starts to affect your thinking and your physical health. And that's at a point where it's really, really, really late and it's already damaged your organs and your um, family. And what we want to do is shine a light on this behaviour for the people who are drinking a second Chateau Neuf de Pap, having a you know, dinner parties on a Friday and a Saturday night so that they can drink and drinking what's left of the brandy or the port. I was going to say dregs, but dregs is a word that is associated with you know, the bottom of the barrel. And people who are middle class drinking don't see it as the bottom of the barrel. They see it as you know, the final four star brandy or whatever it is, um, finishing the bottle. And we have language that um, decries and alienates drinkers and drinking and therefore doesn't connect with a suit-wearing, sensible, middle-class person. But look at, the, look at the recycle bin. Look at the idea of going to a different supermarket to get your drink. Look at the a number of times you'll buy six when you only need one. Look at the times where you will open the second bottle or you'll finish a bottle on a Wednesday because it's not worth putting back in the fridge. And this is the behaviour in the middle class. It's the posh, posh Chateau Neuf de Pat bottle that's um, on offer or the dinner party chasers that is causing our problems and our cost to the NHS for this is huge. What is the cost on a sort of a... Well, people say, oh, you know, I pay my taxes, um, I should get care. And quite rightly, these are people who are paying their taxes and paying their um, tax on alcohol as well. You know, a lot of this goes to the government. We need um, a whole system change for um, this kind of thing as well. People don't realise that drinking alcohol doesn't just make you a bit fat or a bit round at the edge. That fat in your body is crushing your organs. So is giving you heart disease, is giving you cancers inside your in intestines, your stomach, etc. That effect on your brain that you think, oh my goodness, this is so um, lovely, is having an effect on your brain. This is uh, giving you a, a push towards dementia. Each drink gives you that little nudge towards the oblivion that you dread in older life that you're seeking in this day. The slugginess that you get and that happiness is so short-lived because all of this use of alcohol actually increases depression. So every, everything that we're doing of a short-term gain is a long-term loss. And we don't look at it like that. And the middle-aged, middle middle-income, middle-class people plan for their paying off the mortgage 
pay into their pension and yet have another drink, which means that they are each time chipping away at their opportunity of to be able to enjoy both. It's really important to be serious about serious matters. It is, and 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 to hear the truth and the reality of it. Um, but if Gay were here, <laughs> she would be saying, "What's the what's the Pollyanna moment? You can, what's the up?" When I see the the light on people's faces in the theatre, where they say, "This is this is me," it's not a it's not a miserable face. They say what they need to say and then they seek help and that's the light this is the this is us opening up a door that enables people to change the path they're going on not in a um, evangelistic or a miserable way but it's just going down a different path and we're not saying that path is going to be easy and we're not saying it's going to be miserable either when you're drinking choose a way to drink that you enjoy and those with you enjoy being with you. That's the way. That's the, the simple way. What is it that works for you and works for your life and works for um, how you want to continue your life? Olivier again said um, some three key things. He said, with the drink in your hand, do you um, want it? And if you want it, you know, why is it you want it? You could be at a social occasion um, and actually, you know, yes, you want it. If it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon and you're on your own, do you want it is a problem. But do you want it, you're on a social occasion, yeah, have it. Can you replace it with something else? Tonic only, you know, spritzes, um, cup of tea first, or, you know, water chasers, think like that. And then is it going to make a difference, I think is what he said, if you don't have it. And think about that. And if, you, if, it, if all the ducks are in a line, have a drink. We're not saying don't drink. What we're saying is think drink um, first, a bit like the um, traffic signs. So just have that in your mind. Think drink as opposed to just do drink. There's nothing worse than an evangelistic approach to this, you know, telling people what not to do and then um, saying, oh, I'm such a, such a martyr, I've, I don't drink. We don't, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is um, creating a sensible drinking. We don't have a definition of what sensible drinking is. It's different for everybody. So what this message is, is find your level of sensible drinking and then do that. Fantastic. That's a brilliant note to end on. Thank you so much for chatting to me, Maz. If you've been affected by anything in this podcast, please visit our website, humanstorytheatre.com slash podcast for information about organisations that can offer support. We hope you have enjoyed this first podcast series from Human Story Theatre. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Paula, Joe Huey, Nikki, Oliver Sampson, and of course, Professor Marion Maz Lynch. Also not forgetting everyone else I've chatted to for this series. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and stay tuned for more podcasts from Human Story Theatre in the future. Thanks very much for listening. (laughs) 